This episode is one that I've been waiting for in the last couple of years already. If you want to become a better blind tester, Nick Jackson's book Beyond Flavor is a must-have in your library. Nick is a young British master of wine who studied theology in Cambridge and now lives in the sunny Florida, where he imports artisanal European wines, helps private wine collectors and much more. In many ways, his approach to tasting is a rather unique, but most certainly a helpful one. But I'll let him explain the origin story and mythology of the tasting by structure approach. We talked about the major updates in the second edition of his book, about minerality, sapidity and the two texture situation. You hear his criteria for selecting recommended producers, his take on the Florida wine market and of course how to understand varieties. It was a great experience to look behind the curtains and pick Nix's brain a bit on how to structure something that probably never meant to be structured, but rather enjoyed. If you liked this episode, don't hesitate to buy the book under the link below, if you haven't done already so. Oh, and rate the show on Spotify and Apple Podcasts to help others finding this episode more easily. You can also find Nick and myself on Instagram via the usernames in the description, but now please grab a glass and get inspired. Nick Jackson, Master of Wine and author of the Beyond Flavor books. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for taking the time. Thank you, Marta. It's good to be here. Thank you for having me. How did you end up basically in the wine world? Because you studied theology, right, at Cambridge? Uh, if my research is correct. Yes, exactly. Yes. So it was when I was doing my, my PhD in theology uh, at Cambridge that I first was exposed to wine. I just went to... Um, one session of the of the wine society the student wine society and it happened to be a very good session to go to it was the um to bone uh tasting with anthony hansen um and uh, this was back in 2009 and uh, i didn't know anything about wine at that point um i didn't know even really honestly why i signed up to go to that class but uh, that was that was it in that one evening i was just fascinated by what i was tasting and I guess I never looked back after that, so I finished my PhD, and then uh, I remember I handed in my uh, PhD on Friday, and then on the next Monday I started working at Sotheby's, Sotheby's Wine in London. Theology, do you have anything to do with it nowadays, or did you kind of let it go? I mean, apart from going to Mass every Sunday, that's, that's about it. But I think there's a lot of, mm. uh, I, think, I think certainly understanding the rudiments of um, of Catholic theology is actually very important for understanding the way that particularly winemakers in places like Southwest Germany, Austria, of course, Italy, um, still many parts of Spain and France, how they, how they tick, how they think. Um, this tie in with the, not only with the history of uh, vineyard ownership, plantings of the vines in places like Burgundy, all done by the church originally, but also in terms of things like the vineyard year, the sort of cycle of the seasons, all this um, has long been associated with the church year. So I think having a sort of working awareness of the, the sort of the basics of um, of Catholic thought has been very helpful to me, yeah. Mm-hmm. was exposed to wine. I just went to um, one session of the, of the wine society, the student wine society, and it happened to be a very good session to go to. It was the... Um, Ospice to Bone uh, tasting with Anthony Hansen. Um, and uh, this was back in 2009. And uh, I didn't know anything about wine at that point. Um, I didn't know even really honestly why I signed up to go to that class. But uh, that was that was it in that one evening. I was just fascinated by what I was tasting. And 
I guess I never looked back after that. So I finished my PhD and then uh, I remember I handed in my uh, PhD on Friday and then on the next Monday I started working at Sotheby's, Sotheby's Wine in London. That's why you also start the second edition book with the Latin quotation. Oh, no one ever asked me about that. <laughs> but it's a kind <laughs> of, uh, it's a, it's a kind of, it's a kind of joke. Um, it's a, it's a, it's a very famous quotation in Latin, but um, it's about, it's about being humble in the face of, in the face of wine and in face, in the face of how much we can know. And we can talk about the difference between the first edition and the second edition of the book, but one, one thing I include in the foreword to the second edition is an attempt to justify or to explain what I'm trying to do with the book. And what I, what I suggest is that the entire book can be considered a kind of proposal for a way of tasting rather than um, offering a series of definitive answers about what wine tastes like. So um, it's a much more sort of uh, tentative and suggestive project than I think many Many people register, um, which is fine. Um, but that Latin tag is just a, a reminder that we have to we have to be humble in the face of of wine. There's no there's no final word when it comes to this subject. And uh, if you already talked about uh, this kind of humbleness, I think it's a blind tasting and tasting in general. It's a, it could be quite subjective, right? And how how was maybe your first uh, encounter with wine? Not only maybe this first tasting, but also maybe your first professional approach to blind tasting or tasting did you always have the same palette or did you also notice that your palette have been evolving and maybe noticing different stuff or maybe taste wines differently than in the in the beginning yeah i mean it's constant evolution isn't it i mean it's changed since i passed the mw exam it's changed since i wrote the first edition of the book that's why i wrote the second edition of the book it's changed again since i wrote the second edition of the book um but again, it's not just my palate sort of changing and increasing in experience, but I think wines are changing all the time as well, um, not least due to climate change. But, um, but because people are choosing very carefully to make different styles of wine. Um, you know, when I started tasting wine in 2009, no one knew what natural wine was. And now, you know, if you don't have an awareness of what that style uh, how it can behave in the glass, then you're kind of, you know, out of date. So it's always a continuing quest to keep up. But um, yeah, I, my inspiration is longer term. So when I was at Cambridge, there was two societies, the one I just mentioned, the, the wine society, but then we also had a student society of blind tasting. Um, and this was just for the very sort of enthusiastic members of the wine society. And we really existed, uh, that blind tasting society exists to, um, to create a team to compete in the blind tasting match, which happens every year against the University of Oxford. So Cambridge Oxford blind tasting match uh, is sponsored by Paul Roger. And um, I participated in that match in 2011. For many years, Oxford had been winning, but we had a very good team that year. And uh, fortunately we won that year, the year I, I was in the team. But I was, I was, it was a very hard tasting. I remember Janice Robinson wrote it up in the Financial Times and called it the hardest blind tasting ever. And the wines were very obscure and difficult and the scores were quite quite low. But even still, I, was, I wasn't really satisfied with my performance that day. I was kind of frustrated that I missed some obvious things. And so for years, that kind of drove me to, to become a better, a better taster. I do think there are some people who are naturally born 
very, very good tasters, but they're very, very small in number. The rest of us just have to work hard at it. And I wouldn't even say that I'm a good taster now, but I think a lot about it very analytically. Um, and I think one of the things um, that I try and do is be aware of potential uh, hazards in tastings, things that can trip you up, um, have those in the back of my mind. Um, and again, like you said, be humble in the face of what you're confronting. Um, you know, to give you an example, I just came back from um, 10 days in Bordeaux tasting the En Primeur 2022 vintage. Um, and it's a very complicated, you know, vintage to understand uh, and to taste. Um, and, you know, the nature of the wine business is, is that we have to kind of rush to judgment in a way about those wines because they're going on sale immediately. Um, so people need to know, you know, uh, what to buy and what's recommended. So I understand why, but it's very, very hard to taste barrel samples in, in a, especially in a hot, um, concentrated year like that. And that's an occasion when um, you have to be very aware of your of your biases, of your of your prejudices. It's not really possible to taste blind uh, doing on prima, so you know what you're tasting. Um, but you also need you need to to know what you're tasting in order to anticipate how the wine's going to develop. Um, how it's going to age, uh, what the likely trajectory of the wine is in the future. So um, uh, all that's just experience, um, but it's also always a reminder that we can only say so much. Maybe now about the book a little bit. Can you tell us briefly how you found the right way in conscious blind tasting, so the structure-driven way? Yeah, so for, for, for people not familiar with the book, um, I started studying for the Master of Wine back in uh, 2015. Um, and I came out of the uh, the WSET um, education track. Um, the people who come out of the Master Sommelier track will have a bit of a different experience. But, you know, in WSET, we're used to, to, to writing quite descriptive uh, analysis of the wines that are in front of us. And in fact, I think uh, WSET requires that you name a certain number of aromas and flavors that you experience in the glass. And so that was all fine. Um, but I was, you know, you can train yourself to be quite good at that. And, you know, like everyone else, I passed a diploma, so I must have done whatever was necessary. But in the end, I thought that it wasn't really helping me to identify wines and blind tastings, this emphasis on aromas and flavors. Um, for the simple reason that many wines could taste like many other, many other wines. Um, um, sort of, um, I don't like the word neutral, but say not very aromatic styles of white wines. Many could be confused for each other from within Europe, say, or, you know, rich, full-bodied red wines. Um, you know, you could have a Syrah, a Cabernet, um, even maybe a Grenache blend and still be in a state of confusion if you just depend on flavors to distinguish between them. Um, so I was frustrated in my Master of Wine studies that, you know, I was meant to be studying for this top qualification in the wine world, and yet I still couldn't identify between these very basic wine styles um, using flavors. So then what I decided to do is I decided to concentrate on the structure of wines instead. So this is quite sort of a technical, um, very sort of abstract and quite a dry way of tasting. But... Um, what I really realize is that uh, I think everyone in the wine world has always known that tannins, tannins in different red varieties uh, behave differently. You know, Cabernet 
tannins feel very different from Pinot Noir tannins. That's kind of obvious. Um, so what I did in red wines is I began to notice that um, uh, we can specify variety by variety, um, the type or the texture of the tannins, and perhaps the level of the tannins as well. Um, and then we can also, in red wines, identify where physically in your mouth you really feel those tannins most strongly. Um, this is a sort of, you know, a, a surprising aspect, I think, of the tannin conversation, because most people think that you just feel tannins all over your mouth. And for the most part, that's true. But my idea is that all red, major red varieties, um, you can feel the tannins in a more specific place in your mouth than, um, than just saying all over. So that was um, sort of an important moment. So for red wines, then I had this, you know, this trio of things to look at the, the level of tannins, which of course can, you know, vary a little bit by climate and winemaking style, the the type or the texture of tannins, whether it was grainy or velvety or smooth, and then the um, the location of the tannins in your mouth, and then combining those three things, my idea was that um, every major variety. Um, has got a distinctive trio of these aspects. So if you can pin them down for each wine that you're tasting and you know what the profile of each major variety is, you should be in a much better position to understand what that, what that variety might be in the glass. So in a way, the tannin stuff was sort of pre-prepared for me um, because I think many people in wine have always been familiar with this idea that, that tannins uh, are different variety by variety, but I just expanded that idea and tried to make it into a bit more of a, a schema. Mm -hmm. But I think what was a bit more difficult was white wines. Um, you know, no tannins really. So what do you do? So I just heard one of my uh, other master of wine colleagues one day talk about acid structure in white wines. And I never really heard that phrase before, but it really stuck with me. And I began to think about what that would look like. So then I came up with the same idea. Um, of three components to acidity that make up acid structure and every major variety would have a slightly different um, acid structure. So if you could identify these three things, variety by variety, again, you'd be in the same place. You might have a better chance of identifying your white variety. And so for um, white wines, that would be the, the level of the acidity. So, you know, Riesling naturally would have high acidity compared to say, um, you know, Pinot Gris or Gewurztraminer. Um, and then the next aspect would be, again, a bit like tannins, the, the type or the quality of the acidity that we often think about acidity as being tart or refreshing or, but can we be more specific than that? You know, um, uh, you know, bracing or powerful or um, reverberant or, you know, try and find a word that more accurately gets to the heart of how the acidity feels in your mouth, the way it behaves. Mm -hmm. So that, I think that was all okay, but then I really had to introduce quite, you know, quite an abstract concept for the, the final part for white wines, which was what I call the shape of the acidity. Um, what the shape of acidity is, is really about the perception of the acidity during the time the wine spends on your palate. So mm. I always like to keep wine in my mouth for four or five seconds to taste it, you know, get everything out of it. And during that time, if you, my idea is that if you're attentive, you'll experience the acidity doing different things at different moments during that during that period. So at some moments, the acidity will be, you'll perceive it to be higher 
at other moments lower. Um, perhaps you'll experience it to be in different places in your mouth at different times. Um, perhaps it's got a sense of movement, perhaps it's static. And so all of these ideas, I try to sort of encapsulate in one uh, image or metaphor for each major white variety. Um, so let me give you an example to make this a bit clearer. Um, probably the most famous one is Chardonnay. Chardonnay is what has got what I call linear acidity. It's like a line. It goes from beginning to end. So when you're tasting the wine, uh, the wines on your palate, you feel the acidity of Chardonnay at the beginning and it stays steady throughout uh, from beginning to end. There's no peaks and troughs. It's at the same intensity. And all the other elements of the wine, the fruit, the oak, um, are sort of built around that straight line of acidity right through the core of the wine. So um, that uh, linear acidity of Chardonnay, like a line, is an absolute hallmark of the variety. So in Champagne, Blanc de Blanc Champagne, you see it. You get it in Pouline Monrachet and Chablis. You also get it in Napa and Australia. Um, so it's irrespective of the, the, the region or even the wine style. Uh, you see the same um, acid shape. So again, so white wines, just summing up, uh, white wines level, um, type or feel of the acidity, and finally the, the shape of the acidity. So with those three aspects, uh, I, I try to propose this idea that um, using those three, you can get really close to what the variety might be without any reliance on flavor. Because you also come out of this stubby acidity system, basically. So if we don't really have to describe the acidity, it's a new idea from you because we always have to just identify the level of it. And we have five descriptors, low to high. And this kind of shape of the acidity is uh, it's kind of a new idea, but I think it could be very tricky in the beginning. So I also do blind testing for our guests in the hotel. And um, I bought actually a Riesling Smarag from Wachau it's actually father and son uh, who, who are making the wines and it's completely different style because the son is uh, harvesting three weeks earlier than the father so it's no botrytis uh, higher levels of alcohol not as texture rich so to say not extra rich not oily i would guess that the shape of the acidity is still the same because it's the same variety and almost the same village but because of perception of acidity and because of the level of of acidity is so different and also the other textural elements of the wines are so different my question is twofold actually do you think that your perception of the shape of the acidity is representative to the general public and the second one is do you think that the varieties only have one singular acid shape the second one is easier yeah my whole proposal is that varieties have one acid uh, shape in white wines mm -hmm. um if 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 that is not correct then i'm my proposal is is incorrect and you can ignore everything that I say in the book about white wines. That's really, I stand by that. And the, the acid, the acid shape is clearly very important. The only qualification I'd give to that is that, uh, and I, I, I mentioned this in the book, is that um, the most planted worldwide varieties, the Chardonnays, the Rieslings, Sauvignons, seem to have the strongest, clearest, most obvious um, acid shape. Um, and I thought for a long time, oh, well, that's kind of convenient, that's useful for my purposes, it makes it easier for me to write about the wines. But in reality, I think that's the wrong way around. I think that they are great, noble varieties precisely because they've got a very clearly defined acid structure. So um, 
you know, I don't know, like if you want to start talking about um, Grenache Blanc or I don't know, other varieties, lesser known varieties from um, Croatia or the Balkans or somewhere, you know, uh, I don't know whether those varieties have got such a strong acid profile as the famous ones I just mentioned. Um, but I think for for most of the world of wine, we are working with these with these famous varieties, which do clearly have uh, a defined uh, acid shape, which my argument is does not change irrespective of wine style or climate. Um, for the first part of your question, yeah, clearly the concept of acid shape is the most uh, difficult and abstract thing I I propose. Um, in the uh, in the second edition of the book, I have a uh, an illustration for every uh, white variety, um, which is um, an attempt of mine, not that I did the illustration, I commissioned someone to do the illustrations, um, to give a visual representation of my ideas. And I wanted to do that because I thought that some people might be uh, as much visual learners as they would be uh, learners, you know, who, who understand by reading. Um, and so I'm trying to give you two different ways to kind of wrap your head around the ideas, which are very abstract. So I like to work in 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 words, uh, but I also, you know, sort of appreciate the illustrations because I think that it can help and they can add an extra uh, an extra dimension. But the illustrations are clearly a concession on my part that the ideas that we're working with are quite abstract. So um, I know that some people really appreciate the illustrations. Some people just don't kind of understand or get anything out of them and I, I think that's fine um, but it's certainly an admission on my part that these are quite complicated ideas and, and if you've only ever been tasting for flavor understanding acid shape is clearly the most difficult thing to sort of um, to change in your approach to tasting. Maybe also to talk about the confusions uh, sections because I think it's also a new kind of section in the book right it's also a major update um, to the new edition so one major and very useful update, almost for every variety, is you write these kind of small sections. Because you write about Montepulciano, so that's the conf uh, confusion section. Montepulciano di Abruzzo is most readily confused with Chianti, particularly because of its dusty, sandy texture. But Montepulciano shows a deeper color, greater fruit ripeness, and more mid-palate concentration than Chianti usually does, albeit not at the level of Brunello. Sangiovese also shows a greater and usually more attractive perfume. The generous fruit can suggest Apolicella, but Montepulciano shows more tannin and is drier wine overall. Barbera is darker fruited than Montepulciano. So what was the motivational aspect or what was the motivation behind this section and how easy or difficult it was to write these comparisons so clearly and so bluntly? So you really compare it basically aromatically also to other varieties, but also structurally. And you really find two, three good examples almost to every varieties to compare them with. So I think overall, uh, many, perhaps some of your listeners have got the first edition of the book. They may not have the second edition. The second edition was published in September last year, September 2022. Um, and it's the second edition of the book, but it's also the last edition. Um, I'm, I, I've worked hard you know, for five years thinking about all the stuff to do with wine tasted by structure and um, it's been fun and I've enjoyed it, but it's time for me to, to do other things in my life. So the second edition is the final edition. And knowing that in the back of my mind, I really wanted to try and include everything that I could think of that would be useful to wine students. So that's the overall context. The confusion section 
Um, it just means great varieties that you can confuse for one another. And um, the reason why I wanted to include that, I think, is that uh, it's a very practical help for students. Um, really, if you're if you're sitting there uh, with your tasting group discussing um, why isn't this this this, or you know, in Italian wine, the classic confusion between Sangiovese and Nebbiolo, for instance. Mm. Um, I just wanted to. I think there are aspects of every wine that can be summarized clearly and succinctly quickly just get to the point why are these things different uh, there's only so many components to wine aren't there really i mean there's the fruit and the quality of the fruit there's this tannins there's acidity body alcohol so within this sort of limited sphere of things that can change all you have to do really is put your finger on that one thing or two things that distinguish variety by variety so you know, I have so many people, I know so many students and tasters that just throw up their hands and they just give up about a variety like uh, Gruner Veltliner, for instance. They're just like, I just don't understand it. It's impossible to get Gruner. Uh, every time I think it's Alberino or something like that. And just say, no, what are the specific characteristics of Gruner that makes it Gruner? Um, and then this is the kind of philosophical dimension of my project. Um, the book clearly is very is very successful among wine students and like you and that makes sense and i'm happy for it to be so but um more broadly speaking i, I think the second edition does a better job with this i'm really trying to not just <clears throat> excuse me describe varieties i'm trying to understand them what makes them tick you know um we often think of without really verbalizing or, or articulating it we think about our friends, our, our family, the people closest to us. What is their personality or character? What is their their motivations in life? In life, what makes them the people that they are? What are the key components that you could sum up in just a couple of sentences that would help a stranger understand what this person is meant is going to be like when you meet them? It's exactly the same with varieties. Philosophically, I'm trying to get to the heart of the variety. So one big change in the second edition is that while I keep on focusing on the tannins and the acid, the structural components of the variety, I start talking about a lot of other aspects of the wine as well. Like, for instance, in those Italian examples you just read, the quality of the fruit, the texture of the fruit, the body weight, um, all these other aspects which give us a more complete picture of the wine rather than just talking about the structure. Yeah, I think it's a very useful one and also you bring very diverse examples, I would say. So, so you compare uh, sparkling wines, for example, or sweet wines, and you really dial it down to the core. So that's what I like about this book. It's it's much longer than the first one, but still it's so compressed and it's so blunt and so clearly defined, like kind of a Twitter tweet, actually. It's very, very compressed and uh, very, very well made. So thank you very much for this section. I think it's a major update. Uh, maybe now some more other more practical questions because I found it particularly, which I found particularly unique and interesting in the book. In the mellow section, you talk about uh, the two texture situation. Uh, basically, a contradiction between the texture of the fruit and the texture of the tannin. Uh, can you explain it to us and how can one separate the two more consistently? I think that this I this this idea is is one that is sort of everyone understands, but I've just put a name to it. I've given it a name. Mm -hmm. And um, 
and therefore I'm trying to kind of bring it into the conversation a bit more because it's so obvious and yet we never talk about it. The fact that in red wines, fruits can have one type of texture and tannins can have a different type of texture. We just automatically assume that there's one texture to a wine. People say, oh, this wine's got a beautiful texture. Mm. Okay. And so in an example like Pinot Noir, that would usually be correct. One of the absolute genius characteristics of Pinot Noir is um, a continuity of texture between the fruit and the tannins. The fruit is silky and velvety and the tannins are silky and velvety. Mm -hmm. So people often call Pinot Noir a seductive variety. And this is sort of one of the reasons why, I think, because everything uh, is, there's no hard edges, there's no there's no breaks in the texture everything is just a complete whole it's a very harmonious style of wine um but let's take another example merlot you mentioned merlot merlot is is a good example of the two textures thing so merlot is unlike my argument is that it's unlike pinot noir um in the in many cases merlot has got one type of texture for the tannins and another type of texture for the fruit so what is the fruit of Merlot? The fruit of Merlot, as we all know, should be the most velvety, rich, um, plush, ripe um, style of fruit um, among, you know, many, you know, maybe among all the wine grapes. It's very associated with this rich texture. But take, for instance, in, um, in Bordeaux, um, especially in slightly cooler years, but in moderate years as well, uh being a bordeaux variety there's always a slight graininess to the to the tannins bordeaux varieties always have got this kind of grainy quality to the tannins um and so then you're contrasting the graininess of the tannins with the velvetiness of the fruit one of the reasons why we age you know great right bank bordeaux is because um with time the grain softens as the tannins polymerize and then those two textures get closer to becoming one again right so the tannins soften and they begin to take on a bit more of the character of the fruit and being very soft and very uh, velvety but to begin with when the wine is young that's when you experience the two textures there. you can see it um in nebbiolo would be another good example right the the, the very kind of grainy uh sandy tannins very fine grained tannins of nebbiolo but nebbiolo has got the most silky fruits you can imagine you know so it's and I don't think that these things are just kind of incidental. I think, again, these are part of the personality of these varieties and that this kind of distinction in the two textures is part of the drama of the wine. It, it explains why we find these varieties so exciting. Uh, in, in the case of Nebbiolo, for instance, Nebbiolo is a complete wine of contrasts, isn't it? It's got these very high-toned, you know, perfumes, notes, but it's also very earthy. Uh, it's got this very lifted uh, characteristics, but it's got very powerful tannins. So uh, Nebbiolo is in this permanent tug of war between wanting to aspire to the heavens, but also being very grounded in the earth. Um, and it's this dynamic, this tension, this paradox, which courses through the wine which I think makes uh, Nebbiolo such a fascinating variety for, for so many of us. Uh, Pinot is um, a brilliant variety for a completely different reason because of that complete harmony of the textures. But uh, I think so ideas like this um, are interesting for students and uh, when they're trying to identify wines, uh, absolutely. 
But I think also they help us once more to try and get to the heart of the variety and what makes each variety distinct. And in terms of tannin, uh, how does oak come into picture? I was actually thinking about this last night. Someone poured me some uh, Rioja last night. And Rioja is a wine, of course, with a lot of, a lot of oak. Um, and that wine had a lot of oak tannins. Um, so oak tannins are really felt on the gums. Uh, uh, and they have uh, uh, this this very this obvious but this very woody grainy quality to them um fruit tannins tannins from the grapes while they might have all the kind of textures that i describe in the book all different kinds of textures they're nonetheless fruit tannins there's still some kind of element of fruitiness to them but oak tannins um can be a little bit coarse a bit dry um just a bit aggressive um and you know that's a good reason to allow a wine to age in reality i think winemakers are getting better and i think that if you can taste oak tannins you know today for a wine that's on the shelf ready to drink i don't think that's that's a positive i don't think anyone wants that anymore you know oak tannins are, are not very sophisticated things so um you feel them on the gums um and you know they integrate into the wine with with bottle age but um one of the interesting aspects um about the location of oak tannins um is that some wines have a similar location uh, in terms of their fruit tannins so the grape tannins and the oak tannins are felt in the same place on the gums and those varieties are the bordeaux varieties always uh, wherever they're grown in the world so cab merlot you know, even cab franc malbec mm -hmm. um and then Italian varieties as well. So I remember, you know, it's a stupid anecdote, but I was in a taxi in Santa Emilia once, and uh, I was talking to the taxi driver about wine, and he said, um, he said that the wines of Bordeaux, he said in French, the wines of Bordeaux are de la terre et du bois, means meaning they're of the earth and they're of wood. Mm. So to him. A fundamental characteristic of Bordeaux wines is that they are aged in oak. Um, and then if you think about it, um, in this sense, oak tannins are located in the same place as fruit tannins are in Bordeaux varieties. So it's really a very, very natural uh, blend. You don't, you don't always perceive oak tannins very strongly in, in uh, Bordeaux varieties, wherever they're grown in the world. I think simply because they all get kind of wrapped up texturally speaking with the fruit tannins which are felt in the same location so i think that's good and it makes sense why bordeaux should be a wine of wood as the taxi driver said but then there are other varieties where i think you have to be a little bit careful um take for instance uh, pinot you know pinot the tannins are felt um, on the tongue and then they sort of move up to the upper part of the mouth they're not really on the on the gums. So if you have new oak on a, a pinot, then you risk creating this tannin structure around the edge of the mouth when the rest of the wine is is in the middle. Um, and so you could have a bit of a, a contrast there. Um, and again, with enough bottle age, everything integrates. But um, if you're trying to produce wines which are balanced immediately for immediate consumption, that's the kind of thing that you might want to think about. I think we had a kind of similar idea or i have a similar idea as a sommelier but i also have to maybe explain it a bit differently and i uh, try to explain wines uh, to our guests like as a basically as a ferrari wine which is very linear very 
mm. like kind of quick in the mouth or like an SUV, which is kind of broad, like a Chardonnay with mellow and, you know, and um, would you say that it is kind of the same idea as the shape of the acidity? So basically the structure, what we use for structure and the shape of the acidity in white wines are basically the similar thing. Yeah, so this really touches on an idea which I present in the second edition of the book, which is called construction. I call it construction. And so what it does is it takes structure, but it integrates it with the other components of the wine. So um, I talked about, for, let's go back to our Chardonnay example. Um, I talked about the linearity of the acidity in Chardonnay, but clearly the mouthfeel of a Champagne Blanc de Blanc is extremely different from um, a California Chardonnay. Um, that's because of climate. Um, difference, different climates are going to give different body weights, uh, richness of fruit, concentration, alcohol, all that kind of thing. So what I'm really interested in is the way that um, is the way that these elements uh, interact. So, for instance, in a, your a warmer climate example, Puy say or uh, California or wherever it makes warm climate moderate to warm climate Chardonnay, then the acidity may be a, a, of a slightly lower level. That's natural in that kind of environment, but in a way, it plays an even more important job than it does in a cool climate because you have more, as the French say, matière substance of the wine more weight more density of fruit to propel along because that's the job of acidity in chardonnay to move the rest of the wine forward to drag it along from beginning to the end of the time on the palate so even those rich wines um even buttery chardonnays and things like that from california still have that sense of movement um and i think that's a kind of unsung hero aspect of, of chardonnay that people should think about by contrast take champagne um, Champagne, say Blanc de Blanc Champagne, um, obviously it doesn't have the burden of fruit to carry along with it. Um, it's much lighter in the on the palate. Um, but um, what's the purpose of the Chardonnay here? Really, it, 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 it's for structural reasons. It is the skeleton of the wine. Um, acid structure, tannin structure, or, are always the skeleton of a wine. But in a, in a, it's very naked in a wine like Blanc de Blanc Champagne. The acidity is this uh, straight rail and it and it, it just propels the wine forward with such a sense of energy and movement why do you want energy and movement in champagne because that's the whole point of champagne to be a bright lively energetic wine um, it goes hand in hand with the bubbles um, because of the power of that acid structure in blanc de blanc champagne often those wines can be quite long aging as well um, the only thing i would add finally to that discussion is that um, uh, Chardonnay and Champagne doesn't always have very generous mid-palate fruit. Fruit always lives on the tongue in the middle of the palate, and that's why I call it mid-palate fruit. Um, and so for wines which are perhaps made for a bit more immediate consumption, you may want to consider uh, doing something to your wine to add a bit more mid-palate texture, uh, a bit more body, a bit more richness, otherwise you can have a slightly austere expression just of structure, just of acidity and Blanc de Blanc Champagne. And so you can do a variety of things. You can uh, um, add in, you know, reserve wine perhaps, which will have a bit more autolytic character. Um, you can, um, of course, you can blend with a little bit of, of uh, Pinot Noir or Pinot Meunier, which adds um, fruitiness in the middle. Um, and 
uh, you can you know perhaps increase your dosage sugar always adds a bit of you know of body and of texture and so all of these things are basically a statement saying um chardonnay is fantastic for its uh amazing firm linear acidity but sometimes it can suffer a little bit from a lack of mid palate and depending on the wine style i'm trying to make that could be something i might want to try and uh, correct in some way and now maybe the holiest or maybe the unholiest term of all is minerality. <laughs> so uh, you also use this term in the book um, um, multiple times, uh, even with red wines quite often. Uh, for example, in Chevrolet, uh, Chambertin in Burgundy. Um, I think minerality is also somehow related to the shape of acidity or structure of the wine in like how I perceive it basically because we all know from Alex Malpon that minerals don't transfer to wine directly. Uh, so it's kind of a perception basically or at least for me that the wine ends uh, narrowly and it has like a slightly salty clear edginess to it so to say. So what's your idea maybe about uh, minerality and how often do you use it? Well, how long have you got? <laughs> it's a very complicated discussion, isn't it? And it's a very fraught uh, discussion right now. But I think, and this is not something in the book, this is not something I've written an article about, and it's not, frankly, something that anyone in the wine world is talking about. But I think that we are looking and observing something in the wine world, especially right now in the context of these warm years in the 2020s, um, that is happening right in front of our eyes and no one's given it a name and no one's talking about it, but it's absolutely fundamental to modern winemaking, especially in Europe. And this is a concept called sapidity. I mentioned this in passing in the book. Um, I don't talk about it a lot, but it, uh, it kind of gets in there a little bit. What is sapidity? Sapidity is the taste of something savory in wine, especially in white wine. Um, in red wine, there's a lot of savory components, which are called tannins. Tannins are dry, savory components, so that's fine. But in white wine, you have um, you have fruit. It's it's kind of like a like a seesaw, like a children's seesaw. On one end of the seesaw, you have fruit. Fruit is fruity, <laughs> meaning that it's always got some kind of vaguely sweet taste to it. Of course, the you know wines from warmer climates will taste a bit sweeter than wines from cooler climate. But basically, fruit always tastes fruity. It's always a little bit sweet. So you have uh, on the one side of the seesaw fruit, which is a bit sweet, and on the other side you have all the other elements of a wine which balance out the sweetness or the fruitiness. Why would you need that? Because fruitiness by itself is uh, one cloying, but two, and perhaps more importantly. It's boring. If we just want to drink fruit, we can drink fruit juice. Wine is more interesting than fruit juice because it's not one thing, it's not one note, it's more complex than that. So what are the things that balance out fruit and that add complexity to it? White wines, acidity, very obvious. That's the most obvious one. Acidity is sour. So immediately you have some uh, balancing out of the fruitiness of the fruit, the sweetness of the fruit. What other elements can we put in there? A huge one, which I talk about quite a lot in the second edition, and again, this is another subject which no one ever talks about, but which is super important, is phenolics in white wine. Phenolic content. Um, some people call it by the old-fashioned name, dry extract. 
what it means is the solid components in white wines. So uh, almost like the tannins in white wines that can often come from um, the grape skins. So any amount of skin contact prior to uh, fermentation will contribute to that sensation. Even firm pressing will contribute to that. Um, using different parts of the press cycle, you know, perhaps the later parts which are pressed a bit harder, things like that will contribute. So anyway, so what the sensation of phenolics is in the mouth is a drying sensation, just like tannins dry out your mouth in red wines, right? So um, uh, phenolics are generally felt um, around the gums and on the finish of the wine. Um, so that contributes a drying sensation. Phenolics also give a little bit of bite, a little bit of attack, which means freshness, actually. Um, and so again, we have another balance here for the fruitiness, the sweetness of the fruit. You have bite, attack, freshness, um, perhaps even a little bit of bitterness on the finish from phenolics. If you think about wines, a lot of Italian white wines, Suave would be one, but go to Alsace, always you get a little bit of bitterness on the finish. Why, why would you want that in Alsace? Because you have so much fruit in wines like the Wurzstramina, Pinot Gris. Okay, so on one side we have fruit, on the other side we have acidity and phenolics. Salinity, salinity is saltiness, uh, some kind of salt, salty character to the wines. Um, wines like Muscadet, Albarino, uh, other Portuguese, Spanish whites, um, Acertico. Wines like this, they have some kind of salty component. Again, we can argue about where that comes from, but it's a recognizable and consistent feature of those kind of wines, even Chablis. So salt, of course, is, is dry. You know, so it's another thing to be put on the side of the ledger, along with the acidity and the phenolics. Um, wine making. How can wine making change this kind of profile? Well, I think, again, if you've got a very fruity wine like a, a Chardonnay, plenty generous ripe fruit, warm vintage every year in Burgundy. You know, to give one example, there's always a warm vintage these days. So you've got no shortage of fruit in these classic European regions of origin. So again, you might want to, and perhaps you've got, you haven't got very much acidity. So again, you might want other sources of savoriness, of sapidity in your white wines. And winemaking is one way you can do it. Um, I'll give you two things from winemaking you can do. Uh, the use of lees. Lees. Um, lees gives texture, yes, but it also gives a more savory uh, taste profile. Um, it's kind of a, not really earthy, but this sort of, um, it's quite dry sensation that the that, that lees give. And the second thing is, um, we'll talk about Chardonnay, mostly you see this with Chardonnay, but some other varieties as well, and some red varieties, is reduction. So reduction for people who are not familiar is simply reducing the amount of oxygen a wine is exposed to, which can give us kind of tighter profile on the palate, makes the wine a bit tighter, more focused. Um, and it can result in these kind of sulfurous aromas, these kind of smoky, struck match, flinty aromas on the wine. And again, just think about all the notes I just gave, they're all savory, they're all dry. So reduction and leave are two components of winemaking, which would also go on the side of the savory, the dry, the sapid, on the other side of the seesaw from the fruit. So you can see we're building up this list of, of elements that a winemaker can use to help balance out this ripe fruit he's getting from these increasingly warm vintage, especially in Europe. But 
this is 10 minutes to get back to your original question. <laughs> this is how I perceive minerality as being part of the dry elements in a wine, which help balance out the fruit. And so I think you um, were were quite right in the way that you described it as saying something which gives a bit more focus or dryness to the wine, especially perhaps on the finish. Mm. So you think about different types of minerality. Um, perhaps you have some kind of smokiness in uh, volcanic wines like Assyrtico or Suave. Perhaps you have some kind of um, uh, oyster shell saltiness or even something darker in some parts of Chablis. Um, you have that kind of resin thing in Polini Monrache. Um, all of these elements of minerality, again, of course, they're all, they're all savory again. So if you are blessed with um, a terroir that can naturally give you that, then already you're kind of winning in this kind of dry, sweet seesaw uh, puzzle um, because that element comes natively so it's one less thing for you to worry about um, but overall i think that we should apprehend we should conceive of, of minerality only within this broader context of sapidity i think for instance a lot of people confuse say phenolics for minerality it's not just because it's dry doesn't make it mineral you know <laughs> so but my argument is that minerality is one of the contributors to um, sapidity which is this much broader category uh, and one which is I think vital for understanding the way that uh, people are making uh, white wines um, today, especially in um, ever warming climates. When you write about varieties and countries, do you think that you manage to stay impartial? Uh, what I mean is that could you or even can you in your everyday life judge a wines or a grapes quality objectively? Um, probably not. Um... And I, I don't think any of us believe anymore, do we, in this concept of like this sort of encyclopedia-style writing, where you know there's there is sort of uh, objective truth out there, uh, untainted by any human contact. It doesn't really work like that, and that's why I'm happy to, you know, talk with you. I, I you know, I'm on Instagram, and people, you know, send me messages, and I reply with when they have questions about the book. I'm not a hidden author. I'm out here. I'm just, um, I'm, I'm just, you know, it's just like I said at the beginning, it's this kind of proposal for a way of tasting. Um, I think people, you know, people in reviews have complained that, you know, I don't seem to like their favorite variety or whatever. You know, look, I, you know, I, I do like varieties with rigorous structures, which are clearly, clearly defined and, um, and wines with some kind of intellectual interest, like I was talking about the Nebbiolo and the way that there's all this dynamic sort of uh, movement at the heart of that kind of wine. I, I do find those varieties more interesting, but it's not, I would say in my defense, I don't think that's just me. I think all I'm doing is, um, you know, baptizing worldly tastes. I think the rest of the world is more or less, you know, uh, with me because these are the major varieties that we see having such um, commercial success around the world. So. Um, no, I'm not impartial, but um, my system does require me to present a sort of analytical framework for all varieties, irrespective of what I, what I might think about them and whether I drink them. <laughs> I would be the last who judges you because uh, I'm, I'm nearly not so impartial as you were in the book. So also about the producer recommendations because uh, that was one reason I, I wanted to talk about uh, 
uh, objectivity or subjectivity uh, because you also add uh, added producer recommendations maybe one Im important questions for a student or maybe for other one enthusiasts who just want to read a book and maybe have another aspect or learn about varieties is that are they your personal recommendations your personal favorites or they represent the more typical examples for someone who wants to be well prepared for an exam yeah so i have three three categories which the producers must fulfill in order to to be listed one is that absolutely the wines must be must be typical. Typical is a very <laughs> difficult philosophical concept to defend, but let's just leave that for the aside for, for one for one moment. So they must be typical. They must give a good example, a classic example, which will be helpful to people preparing for exams. But also for you know, I have I work with collectors who just say, Nick, what I don't understand. What's this wine region all about? What is this variety all about? This is the kind of wine that I could give them, and they would they would understand. Okay, so typical. Two that they must be relatively widely available across the world um people read my book everywhere in the world and um so there's no point working with people who only sell at the cellar door in you know an obscure region so some international presence and uh thirdly that the wines should be at least relatively affordable that's a moving concept when it comes to regions like burgundy of course but i don't i don't see any value in saying producer recommendation burgundy you know drc Rousseau, <laughs> Meunier, you know, wines that most normal people cannot afford anymore. So um, it's not a question about who the best producers are, but producers that you and I might be able to afford and find and produce typical examples. Uh, and you already mentioned that you work with basically collectors now. Yes, that's one part of the of the, the many different things I do. I work with collectors. I, I, I also import wine into Florida here where I am and sell to uh, restaurants and retailers here in Florida and um, yeah a bunch of different projects okay so how, how are the your days look like today because you're also a master of wine since since uh, 2019 2019 so how how are your basically your days look like nowadays what what are the different projects that you take on well I used to work for a big company for Sotheby's for uh, eight years um, so I, you know, I worked in London, New York, and I commuted in and sat behind my desk, and uh, that was it was great, and I learned so much, and so grateful for my experience there. Um, but yeah, I have a very different life now. I decided to try and work for myself, um, and like many masters of wine, I do different projects, you know, and I sort of combine them to to earn a living. Um, so. Uh, yeah, I work with private clients managing their collections, you know, in terms of, of fine wine. Um, and so I look out for wines for them to buy and um, I manage all their inventory and I tell them what to drink and, you know, just practical things. Like I ensure that the wines get delivered to their house or wherever it needs to be, things like that. So they don't have to worry about anything. Um, and then um, I spend a lot of time now on, on my importing business, which is new as of last year. So um, I have about seven, eight, nine producers I work with from Europe, um, from all different countries in Europe, and um, I sell them to you know the best restaurants and retailers in Florida. So you know I have you know some sales reps who who sell my wines, but I also like to have relationships with the accounts as well. So I spend a lot of time on the road in my car and 
with my samples in my bag going around and you know meeting meeting the accounts and trying to sell the wines and promote the wines mm. so that still takes up a big part of my day and then you know just typical things running, running that business you know paying the bills managing the shipping managing um the accounts all, all that kind of stuff typical of any any kind of business and then i do um i do more you know stuff on the education side so you know book related stuff but i still work with master of wine students as a as a mentor so i, I you know try and help them um they send me you know mock exams to to mark and, and things like that and I try and uh, help out with the student group in, in Miami, which is near where I am. Um, and, you know, this weekend I will go down there and prepare a mock exam for them and things like that. So, um, yeah, it's very, very diverse what I do. No, no two days are alike, but I enjoy it like that. Which aspect do you enjoy the most? Well, I think that, I mean, the one that, that really gets me out of bed right now is the uh, importing. Um, and mostly I work with producers that are not, you know, well known yet, but they're small family producers making fantastic quality wines. So, uh, and you know, what I always say is I've got the, the right wines at the right prices. It's just about getting them in front of people. And, um, and it's just an exciting challenge, you know, um, you know, any inventory business, like, you know, as a sommelier, um, you have to be able to justify why everything is, is you've paid for it. You own the inventory, why it's sitting there, you know, how are you gonna how are you gonna sell it you know what the strategy is um but yeah i mean you know i sell to numerous you know michelin star restaurants and uh, the best places across the state and it's it's very exciting you know it's it's very exciting to present these new wines and have them you know trust trust me and trust my palate and recognize that their guests could like this these mm. these producers and so yeah i do I'm very excited about that project right now. And how vibrant, how often is the, the market in Florida? I mean, is it still the, the mostly the classical regions which are on the in the wine list or or what are the hottest new topics there in Florida, if there are any? Well, you have to understand a little bit of recent history um, to understand the Florida market. So um, when COVID started in 2020, as you know, as in every other country, almost all the restaurants were shut down often for, for a long time. But in America, it, it was decided on a state by state basis. Um, so in Florida, um, we didn't really shut down the restaurants here. They were shut down for one month. I think it was April 2020. And then um, all restaurants were allowed to operate normally if they wanted to. Um, so that really meant that Florida was the, one of the only places in the entire country where people could, could go out for dinner. Um, and that was a huge difference to, you know, for people, uh, in other States. So a lot of people wanted to experience a bit more relaxed lifestyle. So they came to Florida, um, some just for a little bit, some moved house and moved from other States and moved here permanently and not just people, but also businesses. And so a lot of top restaurants in New York decided to open in Miami, for instance, uh, they couldn't do any business in New York. So they thought, well, let's try something different. And so, of course, all those businesses have stayed since, you know, 2020, and they're still going strong. Uh, and in addition, they um, brought new sommeliers to um, to Florida. So uh, young people, often from New York or San Francisco or Seattle, the more traditional markets for fine wine. And so what you had, you know, before all this was a relatively conservative market here selling mostly, 
you know, Super Tuscans and Napa Cabs and some Bordeaux and Champagne. But now this, these new restaurants, these young sommeliers have, are really looking for more diverse wines. Um, and so that's the kind of, you know, market need that I'm trying to, to fill. Um, you know, fresh, vibrant, aromatic, um, wines from, from Europe which are perfectly suited to the warm climate we have here in, in Florida, but haven't traditionally been on wine lists. So that's the, the challenge, but also the opportunity. Oh, sounds like something to, to, to work on, basically, because if you have a very conservative market, which we also have in, in, in Tyrol now in Austria, and I think uh, most wine drinkers, especially uh, in the age, above 60 i would say they drink the same stuff uh, since they were 20 so i think it's also very challenging but also very exciting time in the wine world also here in, in the old world so to say so i think in austria and as wines from other even eastern european countries have evolved and also german wine have evolved in the past i think the, the european wine landscape has also being a bit more interesting and a bit more diverse and also as burgundies became uh, almost uh, unaffordable basically for for the average person as you already mentioned i think uh, it's getting more colorful almost uh, every year do you see any new or emerging wine regions in the world or maybe in europe what you maybe put more focus on I just, I, like you said, I, I honestly think this is, uh, we're living in the greatest ever time to drink wine. Um, mm. I think, um, you know, my interest is really a bit more European wine. So um, I think there are very exciting things happening in outside of Europe. You know, South Africa is really an unbelievably interesting country right now. Places like New Zealand, are diversifying their wine styles. Um, you know, even things like Malbec from Argentina are now available in such a wide range of styles that, you know, there's something for everyone. So all sorts of interesting things happening in those places. But in Europe, I just think that I think there's two things going on. One, there's new regions um, being either discovered for the first time or rediscovered. Um, I'm thinking about, of course, my native England, <laughs> you know, which is now producing uh, really outstanding world-class sparkling wines. Um, I mean, I left England in 2012 and there was really nothing to speak of at that time. That's how quickly the, that industry has developed. Um, um, or a region like Vigno Verde, for instance, in Portugal, which frankly has not got a very good reputation for making serious wines. But again, a, a new generation of, of winemakers are saying, no, we've got unbelievable granite soils, um, uh, a great you know, warm climate during the day, cold at night, um, and a fan fantastic variety in Alvarino. Um, so you get these single variety Alvarinos, one of which I import, and they're so concentrated, mineral, serious wines, just a world away from the kind of low alcohol, spritzy, carbonated mm -hmm. styles of the past. So um, so I think that's one, one aspect, new regions. But then I'd also um, point out the importance of recognizing um, new styles in classic regions. You already mentioned a really good example about a region like the Pajal, you know, so associated with these very rich Baroque, often Botrytis styles of high alcohol, very kind of oily. Um, the truth is, I don't think that that's where consumers' palates are today. Um, 
And I think that clarity, precision, detail, purity are more attractive to drinkers right now. So it doesn't surprise me at all to hear your example about people kind of moving that direction with, you know, with the new generation. Um, you know, or take Barolo, for instance. Um, you know, 10 years ago, and even, you know, some old textbooks still talk about this, you know, don't touch Barolo for 10 years, at least 15 years. You know, if you still think that, you haven't been to Barolo recently, you haven't tasted what's coming out of these classic regions. Um, you know, Barolo, they've worked so hard on tannin management um, that most of the the regular Barolos, the ones that just say Barolo on the label, are really ready to drink, you know, from the moment they're released onto the market, which is already four years after the vintage, right? So, um, you know, supple tannins, fragrant fruit, elegance, finesse, um, beautiful wines. And then I would say that the, the crew category, the single vineyard category, of course, those are more powerful, age-worthy styles to fulfill that traditional Barolo style. But um, you know, th this is a, a region which is kind of changing for our eyes and, and, and for the better, I think. And again, the younger new generation is responsible for a lot of those changes. In this relation, maybe also because of climate change and because of the generational uh, change, do you think that blind testing is getting more difficult? Uh, yes and no. Um... I think that there there can be more similarities between, say, you know, parts of the New World and parts of Europe in terms of the ripeness. Um, you know, again, I just came back from Bordeaux, where most wines this vintage were fourteen point five, you know, and many, you know, more than that. Um, so you can't just distinguish Europe from uh, from non-European origins by doing it on ripeness or alcohol levels for sure. Um, but I think more than ever though the, the the flip side to that is that i think producers are ever more committed to expressing two things their variety and their place um and so anything that obscures those two things is 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 undesirable um so you know even in bordeaux amid these conversations about alcohol levels then we're also talking about how this plot has become fundamental to this grand vin and it's got the best gravel soils over clay to retain the water and things like that. So um, we're still seeking this kind of terroir expression. Um, and the regions, I don't know, take, uh, you know, Germany and Austria, you know, two different winemaking countries, but they both at present at least seem to share to me a desire for, you know, purity and detail as a means, a vehicle for expressing their origins. So you have uh, um, Wachau being different from Kremstal or Kemptal. You have the Mosel being very different from the, the Faltz further south, you know. Uh, and, and again, this, this almost uh, this sort of almost technical commitment to purity uh, in, in these varieties like Riesling and, and Gruner, but also interestingly in Germany in Spätburgunder. Um, to have this rather than having sort of lousy, opulent, perhaps soft, kind of oaky wines, instead you have high acid, high aroma wines, uh, pure and refreshing. Um, mm. And again, all of these things, I think, are removing obstacles away from expressing place. Let me give you one final example. Um, Grower Champagne. Um, Grower Champagne is Again, it's a complicated label, but let's just run with it for now. Not the big houses, but the small family producers, which own their own land. Um, what's the whole point of Grower Champagne? 
you know, does grower champagne just taste like, you know, Bollinger or Porroger? No, and it doesn't because small family producers, which make, which own vines in, you know, one village or two villages can put the name of that village on the label of the wine, right? So suddenly for the first time, not for the, I mean, this is 20 years old now, but, you know, champagne becomes a terroir wine rather than being a huge, you know, blend across the entire region. And uh, so you can have one variety, one village, one vintage, even one vineyard, you know. Um, and by the way, all the Grand Marks now have suddenly started making all these styles, you know, <laughs> having taken their cue from the smaller producers, because uh, I think the real excitement in a region like Champagne is uh, the ability, just like any other great wine region, um, to express the place. And uh, one last question from a fellow student and a very dear friend of mine. Um, how often do you taste? Uh, but basically the most important question is, which I'm also interested in, is how do you structure the tastings uh, to take blind tasting to scale to the next level? Well, I don't know about the next level. All I can tell you is what I did when I was preparing for the Master of Wine exam, um, which is I would taste maybe 12 wines uh, together. And because I would be doing it at home by myself, I would, I would know what the 12 wines were, but I would mix up the order. So mm -hmm. it was, you know, half blind and I would taste, um, very similar styles together. You know, um, you could do say a Southern France tasting. So you have some left bank and right bank Bordeaux, some Cator, Madaran, Chateauneuf du Pape, Languedoc red blends, Cote du Rhone, um, Crows Hermitage some like big, you know, ripe styles from the south of France. And you put them all in a tasting. And then you note down what's distinctive about each one. Um, and then, you know, you see whether you see whether those notes help you to identify the wine correctly. Mm. And then you're like, okay, so now I know the difference between Crow Hermitage and Chateauneuf du Pape. Now I know the difference between Bordeaux and Madaran. You know, and so then you do the tasting again, and then you see whether you get them right <laughs> this time. You know, so it's it's finding, um, and you don't have to use my language, and you shouldn't use my language or any other textbooks language, but find language that works for you, which helps you to just dis distinguish between these different but very similar wine styles, and then use that thinking to approach the next tasting when you come across these kind of wines. So it's deliberately making the tasting hard for yourself because only in that very difficult context, I think, do you really learn a lot. Do you use any digital tools to record your tasting notes somewhere or do you still use like the old fashioned pen and paper? I, no, I'm much more of a typer. So um, I, I run my whole life off Evernote, <laughs> which is a, a note taking app, people who don't know it, but um, uh, yeah, I prefer to type. I typed the master of wine exam. And, um, I like doing that. I, I, you know, I, I like, I like to be organized. I, you know, I, my, the whole scheme in the book is my attempt to impose some kind of order on the chaos of tasting, you know, some kind of, uh, overall scheme. Um, and I really run a lot of my life like that. Just trying to be, trying to be orderly doing things for, for, for a reason with a structure. So cool. Nick, thank you very much. Would you like to add something? No, just uh, thank you for very uh, intelligent questions and um, 
I would love to uh, I'd love to get over to your part of the world and I'll let you know the next time I'm there. Maybe we can taste some wine together. Yeah, please let me know. I mean, the weather is a bit more uh, cloudy than in Florida, but I'm sure that the mountains may maybe uh, do some good. So thank you very much and have a nice day, sir. Thank you. Thank you, Master. Thanks for having me.